0: open off and Skyly Century stayed in the gate. There's Vogue being set alight immediately by Cyril Small and racing to the lead. But Vaux Rogue won't give up. He's still in front. Groucho's grabbing him now. Groucho coming at Bo Don't play, getting a rails run. Vogue in front. He's got a heart as big as himself. He'll win. Vogue! Vaux rogue is cracked it at last in. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing, and Inglis. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B Group Vitamins and Vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30 mil of Recuperate drawn from the 500ml bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code JohnTap.Racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase. The passing of legendary trainer Lou Robertson in October 1955 made headline news in racing circles around Australia and in his native New Zealand. The unique horseman was 80 years old and had relinquished his trainer's licence only a few months before. I'd only just begun to take a serious interest in racing, but the name of Lou Robertson was as well known to racing people of the day as names like Smith, Cummings and Hayes Would become to the following generation. In subsequent years, old press clippings and magazine articles would confirm that Lou Robertson had been a trainer of extraordinary ability. Imagine my surprise just before Christmas when I received an email from Lou Robertson's grandson David, who was working on a book he intends to call The Oyster and the Wizard a fascinating account of the lives of Lou Robertson and his brother Andrew. David is currently canvassing industry support for Lou's nomination into the Australian Sporting Hall of Fame, a very lofty goal for a racing industry participant. He is, however, already safely ensconced in the Australian Racing and Harness Racing Halls of Fame. When Lou first arrived in Melbourne at the turn of the century, he was a full-time trotting trainer. In 1905, he sent one of his horses, Birchmark, back to Christchurch to win the famed New Zealand Trotting Cup with Dave Price driving. He was still training and driving standard long after he acquired his thoroughbred trainer's licence, Over the next four decades, his exploits on the turf would make him a household name and an inspiration for younger trainers coming through the ranks. David Robertson was born in 1955, the year of his grandfather's death. He has painstakingly researched the life and times of Lou Robertson and has obviously been privy to many anecdotes which have passed down through the generations. He joins us on the podcast on a Sunday morning. Nice to catch up, David.
1: John, thank you very much. That's a very good uh, intro, can I tell you? Well, um...
0: (laughs) I I hope it's accurate because it's thoroughly (laughs) deserved. No,
1: no, it's it's great. Thank you very much and thank you very much for uh, um, inviting me, uh, John. Very much appreciated.
0: Just to establish the family connection – your dad was Lou's eldest son, John, known in the family as Jack.
1: That's right. Um, he had uh, Lou had three sons. he had uh, my father, Jack, uh, Bruce, and also Ross.
0: Your uncles and only one of them is still with us, and that's Ross at a grand yes. age.
1: Yes, thank goodness. so yeah Ross is uh, still alive.
0: at At what age, David?
1: Uh, he was born in 1928, off the top of my head. He's 94, so, uh,
0: yeah. So
1: there you go. So now he's he's great, and um, and uh, he's uh, contributed to uh, to the oyster and the wizard, and uh, and I really uh, appreciate that.
0: At what point in your life did you make up your mind to investigate the life and times of your grandfather?
1: Well, funny you should ask that, John, because uh, we were raised uh, actually in cricket rather than uh, horse racing. I didn't know a fetlock from a forelock from about 10 years ago. (laughs) But but the the fact was that the three boys, um, Lou's sons, uh, as well as I should point out Andrew Robertson's sons, were all raised away from racing, and uh, particularly Lou and – and his wife Gertrude, they'd made a pact that uh, the kids just would not be raised around racing. So uh, mm. I would very much doubt whether any of those boys even sat on a horse, um, which is to uh, a lot of people in the racing industry would strike them as incredible, mm. you know, especially when you see the Hayes family and, uh, and the, the Cummings family and uh, obviously the Smith family. I mean, uh, mm. uh, but, he just simply refused to uh, to um, involve them in racing at all and uh, mm-hmm. and so we were in cricket and uh, and uh, I had a um, school my daughter had a school assignment mm-hmm. and and she we did one on Lou and so that was the first chance I really had of in investigating Lou mm-hmm. um and uh, but uh, then there was the Hall of Fame nomination and uh, I did the successful Hall of Fame. My Uncle Ross had, had done one the year before, um, but I I did one in 2004 uh, in, for the 2004 nomination for the Racing Hall of Fame, uh, but I didn't really get into this until about um, eight, nine years ago when my mother died and I found all these letters mm. that she uh, had written to Lou, and uh, then there was so much that I didn't know and so many facts that were wrong, i I I, I explored it and then mm. started writing this book. And uh, from uh, having absolutely no knowledge of racing mm. to uh, to being probably uh, reasonably uh, knowledgeable in this in this particular area, I thought, well, if I'm going to write something about a horse trainer and, and about a bloodstock agent, mm. I might as well know the subject. So mm. that's done.
0: Now, the title of the book you're working on, The Oyster and the Wizard. Uh, it comes from the fact that your grandfather was called the Oyster because he never spoke about the prospects of his horses, while Brother Andrew was called the Wizard because of his extraordinary ability to judge bloodlines. This book has been a labour of love, and you're chipping away as we speak.
1: Exactly. I mean, uh, I, it, it could have been to a degree, I suppose it was almost finished, um by um, two thousand and fifteen so uh, I started writing it in uh, two thousand and thirteen um but didn't um and just kept unearthing stuff so uh, um I'm glad I haven't uh, it it's something that probably needed uh, a little bit more time and uh, mercifully uh, i've I've given it a bit more time and uh, there's a lot of information there and, and also I should point out john there's a lot of It's not simply about um, Lou and and Andrew. It's about the industry, about all the characters that they had, all the owners, the fellow trainers, the jockeys. So it's really a biography of not just really um, Lou and Andrew. There's a lot of mini biographies in there as well and some Mm. real great characters.
0: Mm. Lou Robertson was born and reared at a place called Brightwater on the South Island of New Zealand and he began his career with harness horses. He quickly earned recognition as a trainer of great promise, and he took to race driving like a duck to water. What do you think inspired his move to Victoria with a team of pacers and trotters? Uh, In
1: 1902, uh, John, he was uh, managing a place called Brooklyn Lodge. The owner of Brooklyn Lodge, uh, um, Henry Mace, died, and they had to have a dispersal sale. And uh, he had one of the best farms in, in, in New Zealand. And, uh, and a lot of people came over from Australia to, uh, to, uh, to be at that dispersal sale. And, uh, and Lou and uh, his brother, his brother was doing the cataloguing. Um, mm. Lou was riding the, driving the horses. Mm. And they met uh, the Thai brothers. Mm. And so uh, the Sharp brothers. Who were timber merchants, and and they helped with the bidding of uh, of uh, Elmont and Belmont M, and uh, mm. and they actually went over to um to the Thai brothers um, um, Allendale Farm. They got mm. invited over to manage that farm mm. for a really three week trial, and they stayed, uh, and, they, and they and they basically never went back.
0: Mm. Before we look at Lou's extraordinary career we should make mention of Andrew. his elder brother by six years. Andrew came to Australia with Lou and for more than 40 years acted as his advisor, his sounding board, and more importantly, his pedigree consultant. Andrew's reputation as a judge of bloodlines was quite legendary in that day, wasn't he? There's no doubt he played a massive role in Lou's career.
1: Absolutely, John. He was uh, he was the engine. He was uh, he was he was everything to Lou because uh, he almost every winner was either imported by Andrew, was either uh, uh, bought at auction by Andrew, or was uh, or was actually bred by Andrew. So mm. no, he was he was uh, very important. He was also very good uh, with regards finance and and helped Lou with his finances.
0: Mm. It was about ten years after his relocation to Victoria when Lou applied for a thoroughbred trainer's licence. But he continued to train and drive harness horses, didn't he, for some time after he started with the Gallopers.
1: He did do that, and uh, and uh, he because he was such close mates of um, Dave Price, who also was doing the same thing. Mm. Um, they uh, both of them had uh, had thoroughbred. Uh, racing operations as well as um, harness racing and so yes now he was doing that uh, constantly between about 1908 to about 1915.
0: Mm. Lou Robertson's name as a thoroughbred trainer first gained prominence when he owned and trained the 1914 Adelaide Cup winner Hamburg Bell. That was the start and he was off and running.
1: He was. He was. Uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, he. Uh, and again, that was one of Andrew's imports, and uh, him uh, Hamburg Bell, and also uh, the Australian Cup winner uh, Lemprier were mm. the first American imports, and uh, and so no, that's that really got his uh, career going.
0: To review his entire race record uh, would be a monstrous task. So, for the purpose of the podcast, David. We're going to touch on his finest moments. We should emphasise that your grandfather rarely had more than twenty horses in work, one tenth of the numbers in some of the biggest stables today.
1: That's right, John. I mean, they, it was uh, by by today's standards, he he ran a almost um, you know hobby farm really, um, because uh, probably I mean often it was often less even less than twenty. So. Uh, He was, uh, by today's standards, a very, very small operation.
0: Mm. His supreme highlight was a Melbourne Cup win with Marabou in 1935. Now, this Cup was notable for a few reasons. Peter Pan was asked to set a weight-carrying record with 10 stone 6, which proved too much. It was the sixth Melbourne Cup appearance by that grand old campaigner Shadow King, who ran fourth, and it had a bizarre aftermath when Marabou's part owner, Joseph Fell, died just 24 hours later.
1: That's right. Um, Marabou was – Lou always got the greatest kick out of, uh, you know, Marabou winning the Melbourne Cup, but he often said – that um, it wasn't the winner in itself which gave him the greatest satisfaction. It was the fact that his brother Andrew mm. had imported both the, the Sire and Dam and deliberately bred a Melbourne Cup winner. And he sold, sold that horse mm. to Joseph Fell and his partner Tom Hogan on the promise that it, in fact, would win a Melbourne Cup, mm. long Blue kept training it.
0: Mm. Marabou went on to Sire a Melbourne cup winner not long after nineteen forty one skipton who remains the last three year old to win the cup
1: that's right um skipton was a uh, remarkable horse but uh, but um Maribu was a um a particularly underused sire because obviously uh, the the um the vogue i suppose was that uh, you use imported english sires mm. um but really, Marabou was was an English so in everything but name. Mm. But he was he was a fantastic horse, and uh, and probably, uh, but unfortunately, got sold because you, as you alluded to, um, John Fel, um, Joseph Fell died, mm. and uh, went into auction. Andrew was the underbidder, and it went to Charles Callow, and then trained by uh, Jack Holt.
0: Marabou was ridden by a brilliant expatriate New Zealand jockey called Keith Voitra who three years later at age 25 died from injuries received in a four horse fall at Mooney Valley now he was regarded by the good judges of that era as the best rider to ever come out of New Zealand to that point in time and Voitra had no greater fan than Lou Robertson
1: absolutely yeah what, he was he was phenomenal. This guy, and uh, he's one of the great uh, great sporting tragedies. He uh, he had a phenomenal um, 1935 calendar year, um, but beyond that, he was a he was a, just a really really good person. I mean, and he and as you said, he died in this horrific four horse pile up at Mooney Valley in uh, 1938, and it was just uh, it's just one of those tragedies. He was. Uh, he was brought over to New Zealand oh, sorry, to Australia mm. by Andrew who had sons in New Zealand. He would often go to the races and he saw this guy and he thought, This is this guy's great and he and he effectively got him over to uh, to Lou Stables and Lou had him as his stable elect.
0: Lou and Keith Voitra had one amazing spring carnival in nineteen thirty five. They won the Cox Plate with Garrio. they won the cup with Marabou. They won a derby, didn't they? Was that Felspar?
1: That's Felspar.
0: Yeah. And the Oaks? Nelda. Nelda, yep. What a tribute to the combination of Lou and Keith Voitra.
1: Oh, absolutely. And uh, they were training for um, Maribou was with Joseph Fell, as you said, but um, the uh, Felspar and Garrio were um, Alexander Krezik's horses and these are the best victories he ever had. Mm. And was with Sol Green.
0: Lou won another Cox Plate, didn't he, some years later with a horse called Leonard.
1: That's right. That was side by Doty, but uh, Leonard was a uh, was a fantastic horse and, uh, and uh, he was a, uh, uh, probably, again, um, like a lot of Lou's horses because Lou had a, a lot of bad luck also with his horses. Mm. Leonard probably should have done more than what he did too.
0: Lou had high regard for a horse called Gothic, with whom he won two new markets, a faturity stakes and a string of wait-for-age races. I think he had nine stone ten when he won his second new market. It's a great story, the Gothic story. He was purchased in England, wasn't he, by Andrew Robertson.
1: That's right. He was a great horse, actually, John, and, uh, and here's a horse that really probably... In all, uh, in all fairness, should also be in the hall of fame. Mm. Um, he's uh, one of only four horses who's won a, uh, who's who's done that uh, Futurity um, uh, Futurity Newmarket double, mm. uh, um, but he's uh, but he also won the Newmarket twice, and uh, the second Newmarket was phenomenal where he got checked, he almost fell at the start. And uh, Pike got him home and said he's never until, – um, until Farlap won the Futurity, Pike said this was the greatest horse he'd, he'd ever ridden.
0: There are many wonderful quotes uh, about the attributes and the talents of Lou Robertson and Jim Pike was responsible for one of those quotes. He said uh, in a story that he wrote for a racing publication many years later – when you look at one of Lou Robertson's horses in the parade yard, it's like looking at roses in full bloom. Beautiful.
1: It's a it's a lovely quote, isn't it, John? Mm, love it. The um, one of the quotes that I really love is that uh, there were two uh, two press guys going to the stables, um, and they were looking at a Lou Robertson horse, and one of them said to the other, uh, "If I ever die and come back as a racehorse." let it be that I'm in uh, Lou Robertson's stables. (laughs) So, no, he he lavished his horses, John. He really, he he shampooed them, had lotions on them. He was, uh, they, you know, somebody mentioned that it was like going to a really exclusive health spa, going to a Lou Robertson stable.
0: He won his first Caulfield Cup in 1915 with Frank Dempsey in the saddle. He won his second in 1949 with a horse called Lincoln, and that was his last big race win. Levando was the name of his first Caulfield Cup winner, I think, David.
1: That's right. Levando was a tremendous horse, again, imported by Andrew um, with the uh, with the Dan Lavella. And, uh, and Lavendo was a tremendous horse. And they had a huge double, huge uh, Cups double, a Caulfield Melbourne Cup double, him and, uh, and his, one of his best mates, uh, Eric Connolly, who was a Leviathan punter. Um, and uh, unfortunately, Dempsey messed up the start in uh, the Melbourne Cup um, and, and that double went west. But that was worth, gee whiz, that was probably worth, in today's terms, maybe $20 million. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it was a it was a huge. Uh, like it was a great horse, and and uh, and Lou had tremendous respect for it, and thought it could have been anything.
0: You surprised me the other day on the phone when you told me that Lou Robertson had saddled up a huge number of minor place getters in both the Caulfield Cup and the Melbourne Cups. Those figures were astounding.
1: The uh, – it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, he had um, – off the top of my head, he had five uh, seconds in the Melbourne Cup and three-thirds. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had uh, – in the Caulfield Cup, he had seven placings in the Caulfield Cup, but he also had a lot of horses uh, fall on him. He had, um, he had Morse Code in uh, 51 that was in a winning position and it fell in the straight. Uh, he had uh, San Martin. That also uh, that broke a leg in the in the forty four uh, cup, uh, but he also had Lawrence, who was favourite for three years running and never started once. Um, so he had a lot of he had a lot of really, really great horses, Sir uh, John, and uh, with a I mean turn of a dime he, he he could have just as easily had you know seven, eight Melbourne Cup winners as as as, as having just the one.
0: Whenever Lou Robertson's good horses are talked about, Streffin's name always comes up. Lou won several races with Streffin, including the 1928 Victoria Derby, and he had a big rap on the horse, didn't he?
1: Well, a huge rap, and here's another one of Andrew's. Andrew imported Saltash, the sire of uh, of uh, Streffin, uh, for, for Percy Miller, and so he urged um, Lou to actually buy this horse, and... Um, for uh, Sol Green, Sol Green didn't wear a bar of it, but he uh, he bought it nonetheless. And uh, and Strephon turned out to be absolute magical horse. He's probably one of the he's up there with the uh, with the best three year olds John that have ever ever been on the Australian turf. And uh, mm. and his record is is something else. And uh, unfortunately, he came on so quickly during the Spring Racing Carnival of '28. Uh, but Lou really didn't prepare him properly for the uh, for the Melbourne Cup. But he was a he was a, one of the really great three year olds, and also one of the great tragedies too, because he was taken over to England mm. uh, by Sol Green, and unfortunately the ship got caught in the Red Sea and effectively cooked this poor horse, and it was just useless after that, unfortunately. But it was a it was compared with Fairlap, um, and so there were three great chestnuts. Um, Streff and Farlap and, uh, you know, Peter Pan, and they were all compared with with one
0: another. Mm. You mentioned earlier that uh, Lou uh, spent many years on the Thai family's uh, property, Allendale, which was situated right where Moorabbin Airport is today. He worked his horses on a private track on that property for quite a long time, but eventually he moved to Mordialik where he built the most exquisite stable block. It was the envy of many fellow trainers at the time. Roomy boxes, high ceilings, beautiful hardwood doors and walls. All fittings were brass, and stable staff had to polish them until they could see their faces in them. Perhaps the greatest testimony to Lou's dedication is the fact that all feed bins and water containers were made of porcelain so that horses didn't have to deal with sharp edges. Now, this is the man, uh, you you can see now clearly the reason uh, why Lou Robertson's name was held in the highest regard as a trainer for generations after his death.
1: John, his uh, his stables were, you know, meticulous really and... uh... And they were innovative and they were still innovative when after they were constructed in about 1922 you know, years later, I mean, in the 40s, they were still innovative and uh, they were a showpiece. And a lot of people, not only um, Australians, but a lot of people from England and America would be coming over and having a look at these stables. So, no, he was – they were were extraordinary by all accounts and uh, every – person I've ever spoken to who had seen these stables, especially the uh, old jockeys that I've spoken with, Mm. Um, they all say the same thing they were just extraordinary.
0: Mm. Uh, They'd be long gone I presume David because the uh, Epsom and Mordialic Racing Precinct was swallowed up by the developers some years ago
1: That's right, Um, the stables stood for a while after that but they were then uh, converted to a a really nice house, actually, uh, John. So, uh, but um, the uh, but the the actual block that he had there on Shoot Street and uh, Parsons Street, um, he he had the whole block, and it was just uh, by all accounts extraordinary. I mean, he had this huge hedge around it, and uh, but it was like going into something very very special. But he didn't actually train the horses there; he trained the horses at Aspendale uh, Racecourse, and that was really one of the secrets. Where he'd be having this three-kilometer walk to the uh, to the racecourse and three kilometers back, and so he socialised his horses, and uh, plus they had a six-mile walk in the day even before they stepped foot onto a onto a uh, race track. Track.
0: It's been said that he had an understanding of the horse's anatomy equal to any vet.
1: Scobie Breasley told me that, actually, John. He said that uh, the two best trainers that he ever rode for was uh, um, Vincent O'Brien when he was in England, Mm. and uh, in Australia it was uh, Lou Robertson. He said Lou Robertson's horses were always prepared well, but he said that um, one of these secrets was that he had this – he could understand the physiology of a horse almost uh, better than any vet. In fact – often often better than any vet, and that's why he selectively trained and selectively fed them, and, uh, and uh, he could do this because he just understood the horse. He was like a horse whisperer. Hmm.
0: He was renowned for concocting potions and elixirs, which <laughs> would alleviate most of the ailments that horses develop under the stresses of racing and training. Uh, I would imagine some of Lou's potions and elixirs uh, would be very uh, seriously viewed today in the stable fridge. <laughs>
1: uh, you could say that, couldn't you, really? Uh, his, uh, they say the, uh, the local chemist at, uh, at Mordialik was, um, you know, Ballantyne's, and, uh, and Ballantyne's would often say that uh, Jack Holt and, uh, and Lou Robertson were his uh, best customers. So, uh, no, he was a, he was a magician when it came to, uh, these elixirs and other trainers would often come to him and, uh, he would, uh, uh, you know, look at, uh, a horse's feet or, or something. And he would just say, oh, just one moment and go, go into the back room and mix up something and then give it to the trainer and say, yeah, try that, apply that for a few days and see how it goes. Mm. And, uh, hey, presto, they'd come back, but they shone like diamonds. some of these horses. And, uh. And it uh, was, uh, was obviously partly, mainly because how he fed them and trained them, but also he did in fact have horses, as Scobie briefly said, John, running well after a lot of trainers would have uh, given up on them simply because he could uh, keep them on the track and often sometimes with these uh, concoctions.
0: The bandaging of the legs of the thoroughbred is an art in itself. It's got to be done the right way. And legend has it that Lou Robertson was a master of the craft.
1: Oh, absolutely! He was raised around horses in as much that his father was a um, blacksmith. He taught his sons the uh, the the, uh, the craft, so both Andrew and Lou were really adept blacksmiths, and they understood horses. And they and they often uh, Lou often bandaged his horses. Not that the horse needed bandaging per se, but he was very good at um, just one of those preventative measures. And that's why when you see um, Farlap, um, Lou, and, uh, Lou and, um, and Telford were great mates. And so uh, he helped Telford often with the, uh, with the strapping of, of, of his horses.
0: Just pause for a moment, David, to clear a commitment on the podcast. We'll come back with David Robertson after this. The Canterbury Guineas was superseded by the Randwick Guineas in 2006, sparking a little nostalgia for old-timers like me. Here's a little Canterbury Guineas trivia. Only a small number of fillies won the race, but there was one amazing sequence Between 1985 and 1989, when four fillies prevailed. 1985, it was Spirit of Kingston for Bob Hoisted and John Marshall. 1986 brought a major shock when Dol at 50 to 1, won the race for Frank Lewis and jockey John Miller. It was Dol only win in 30 starts. In 1987, the top New Zealand filly, Tidal Light, dominated the race at a shade of odds on for trainer Jim Gibbs and jockey Lanceau sullivan two years later the new zealand bred riverina charm won the guineas for brian mayfield smith and ron quinton it was nine years before tycoon little gave the fillies another canterbury guineas triumph now it's called the randwick guineas and the 2022 edition comes up with a purse of one million dollars on march the 5th when lou robertson died in 1955 he still owned his house and stables but he admitted late in life that gambling had robbed him of much greater wealth. I've no idea what he considered to be a decent bet. Do you?
1: Well, he was. Um, he had some huge bets. As I mentioned earlier with Labendo, um, him and Connolly had that uh, Caulfield-Melbourne Cups double came off in 1915 and, um, they would have, uh, they would have had almost had enough money to buy more Alex, really. I mean, they were huge bets, some of them. Um, and he had, uh, he was constantly concocting betting plunges, and uh, and so no, when he was in his heyday, I mean, he just terrorised um, bookies, and that's this is one of the reasons why John um, he had so many favourites um, during the spring racing carnival. The the bookies just would not allow his horses. To uh, to drift because uh, they were terrified that there'd be suddenly some clandestine plunge would come out the flying you know just torpedo them. Mm. So yeah, you know, he, he 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 was the first to admit that uh, he was a he was a chronic gambler and he uh, and he did it in partnership a lot with uh, with uh, Eric Connolly who they spoke to every day. His
0: penchant for a punt played a major part in the personality he developed over the years. Apart from his owners or any person he wanted to involve, Lou Robertson was as silent as the Sphinx.
1: Absolutely, it was. That's why he was called the oyster because he just clammed up. Mm. He disliked uh, he disliked the press. In fact, he disliked yeah um, uh, yeah you know, interruptions more than anything else. And so uh, he didn't believe it was anybody's business. Uh, um, other than his owners, and even they may not have been always privy to uh, what he was doing, and um, but he was uh, he was uh, part of part of that was the fact was he was this uh, leviathan gambler, and he was probably one of the biggest. Uh, Gamblers in a, in Australia at the, at any given time really un, until the end there where the uh, where the finances uh, sort of disappeared down the toilet. But apart from that, you know, before that he was he was he was up there as uh, some of the biggest gamblers Australian t- racing has ever seen.
0: The same bloke though could be remarkably generous. Stable staff often received a gratuity.
1: Absolutely, he was. Uh, that's one of the reasons why um, he was so successful as a trainer. I mean, he looked after his staff as well as he looked after his horses. And uh, if he if he made any money from a bet, you can guarantee that there'd be a ten pound sling coming to the strappers or to the jockeys, to the you know everybody. He, so he was very very generous, and he also very generous with regards. to people in general, he was, uh, you know, during the Depression, he'd often settle people's bill at a store or he'd, he'd employ somebody that he didn't really have to employ just to give the man some dignity during, during that time. So, no, he was a very generous man, John.
0: He had dealings with some of Australian racing's most high-profile people. One of them was Sol Green, a prolific owner, a bookie, a businessman who owned Gothic, among other good horses, they had a very close connection.
1: They did. They had a very interesting connection, too, because uh, um, soil grain can be a little bit volatile and. Uh, and uh, Lou trained horses as though he owned them himself, so he didn't really like any interference from trainers. And uh, Soil Green wasn't really that kind of um, sit-back-and-let-the-trainer-do-his-job type of guy. And uh, so they had a few moments in time, and uh, but they, they had a very, very profitable and very good partnership. And in 1928-29 year, I mean, Lou won the trainers' premiership mainly because of uh, Gothic and uh, Streffin.
0: Mm. And what of his association with the dynamic John Wren, who was a huge name in that era? He was a bookie, he was a businessman, he was a sports promoter, he was a racehorse owner, goodness knows what else.
1: John Wren was. Um, John Wren was a was great mates. Of, uh, of Lou. Um, and when I say great mates, John Wren wasn't really the type of guy you'd sit down and just have a beer with. I mean, he wasn't that type of guy, but he was but Lou always had tremendous respect for John Wren. He always believed John Wren was, uh, was safe trotting, which he probably did. Um, he was uh, and he was a man of his word. He was uh, John Wren when he said he was going to do something. Be it good or bad, he would he he he'd do it, and uh, and Luke could always depend on him. And in fact, um, John Wren um, was also a great mate of uh, Eric Connolly's, and uh, and they were both pallbearers for Eric Connolly when mm. he died in, died in 1944.
0: And there were others: uh, the legendary breeder Percy Miller, uh, the racing administrator Ross Gray Smith, and Jack Holt himself, a famous trainer. They all respected his talents and his opinion.
1: And they were all, and they were all mates. And they were all... Uh, um, Jack Holt, particularly, um, had tremendous respect for uh, Lou Robertson and also vice versa. And, uh, and uh, I mean, in, when Jack Holt um, became infirmed after his heart attack, uh, it would be Lou that would be uh, taking out Jack Holt and, uh, and often Telford. You know the three of them would go out to uh, the races uh, and um, but uh, Ross Gray uh, Smith uh, mm. was uh, committee man he had a lot of it. he was training for a lot of the VRC committee and Ross Gray Smith was one of them and uh, and uh, who was the other person you mentioned John sorry
0: um, well Percy Miller the breeder
1: Oh, oh of course sorry um, mm. yeah um, Andrew. Imported a lot of he he was a bloodstock agent for Percy Miller and he imported a lot of Percy Miller's horses and um, and uh, he was uh, but uh, they they didn't start out as friends because uh, um, Percy Miller started off in trotting and uh, and uh, Lou bought a horse up to New South Wales and uh, and uh, Percy Miller um, did this shonky trick on them that where they where they had an amateur rider and, or driver, and they had a, a three-second start on him. And uh, Lou lost a lot of money when he first met uh, Percy Miller, but they became mates later in life. They were really good mates, and but more particularly Andrew and, uh, and Percy Miller because Andrew was working directly with Percy Miller with regards to the imported horses. You've written a
0: couple of sentences about Lou's habit of dropping his loose change in a dish in the hallway of his home. When he arrived home from the stables or the races, and you say at the height of the depression, there was more money in that dish than most people would see in a month.
1: That's right. I mean, he was uh, he he protected his family. Although the family wasn't involved in in racing, only Lou. Um, I mean, they they were the benefactors of that. And Lou had uh, Lou would come home. He'd, he'd come home like clockwork. He even came home and had dinner after the races. But he he would come home, and during that 1935 spring racing carnival, he would just empty change into the, into the dish. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, people, well, his neighbours may have been eating the wallpaper off, off the wall, really. So, uh, no, he was uh, – it was amazing. It was like uh, coming home like, like a, uh, you know, a slot machine, John.
0: Mm. Well, it appears then that Lou's wife, Gertrude, had an enormous influence on the upbringing of your dad and your two uncles.
1: Absolutely. Gertrude, uh, um, Lou had minimal input with regards to the family. Everything was to do with the horses and everything, and the horses absolutely came first, and uh, they had a very strange marriage, uh, Gertrude and uh, and Lou, uh, and depending on which member of the family you speak to, that uh, they were uh, they were probably not suited for one another, but they uh, but they, they functioned. Mm. And, uh, and particularly Gertrude did raise the uh, children, and also Gertrude's sister, during the Depression, needed a place, and so Lou invited her into the house, so Gertrude and her sister, Addie, uh,
0: really raised uh, the three boys. Mm. Just to illustrate the impact that Lou had on Australian racing, I'm going to ask you to reiterate a few quotes you've garnered from high profile racing people over the years. Now, at the time you were trying to secure Lou's induction into the Racing Hall of Fame, you called Bart Cummings, and I guess you were lucky to get onto him too.
1: I was. I was. Um, I was, uh, um, it was made. Under, uh, it was made understood to me that I really needed to get the um, racing community on board if I was to have uh, Lou into the uh, Hall of Fame. So uh, um, I thought, well, might as well start at the top. And uh, I gave Bart Cummings a call and I phoned up his. Uh, I phoned up his uh, stables and uh, I said, look, uh, it's Lou Robertson's grandson. Can I speak with Bart Cummings? Not really expecting to uh, get Bart Cummings, just to sort of maybe get a message to him. Mm -hmm. And I was back through to him. I said, look, uh, Mr. Cummings, uh, quite frankly, I'm a little surprised. He said, "Why? you know, to actually get you straight away, he says, oh, why not? You're Lou Robertson's grandson. I thought, wow, that's a promising start. And he said, I said, look, I'm trying to get Lou into the – into the Hall of Fame. He said, oh, I should have been there years ago. He's brilliant. And my father thought he was a genius. So,
0: Did he? Did he really?
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, so Jim Cummings was up against him with uh, in 1950 with when he won the Melbourne Cup with Comic Court and Morse came third. But, uh, but no, Jim Cummings had had a tremendous amount of respect for him.
0: On another occasion, you met Colin Hayes at a social gathering and you just casually mentioned to Colin that you were Lou Robertson's grandson, and his reaction yeah, well, that, took you by surprise, didn't it?
1: Well, it did because what happened was that my uh, sister was doing some uh, some uh, some catering, and uh, they they and she got uh, she got in, um, to do the catering at uh, um, what's his name Thermidor's house um, in mm-hmm. Kew. And, uh, and it was after the Best Loosen Up Syndicate. Was I, mean, I didn't realise what what the thing was and uh, and suddenly there's Colin Hayes and his family and there's about the time when Ben was just born and uh, and uh, I was taking drinks around and uh, and uh, you know saying yeah congratulations congratulations pouring drinks and oh Mr Hayes you know congratulations uh, and uh, my uh, my grandfather used to uh, train horses and you can see the roll of the eyes John go oh god not another one and. <laughs> And uh, and anyhow, I said to um, to him, yes, my grandfather uh, Lou Robertson. And even David just shot around and said, "Wow, you know." So then, and Colin Hayes' eyes lit up. He said, oh, one of the greatest." And uh, he was, uh, if if he's your grandfather, I'd be very proud of that. He was. Uh, we partly fashioned what we're doing out at uh, at Lindsay Park while he was doing out at uh, race Racecourse. So. Uh, it was a huge rap indeed. So he was—he uh, was—he made me uh, feel because at that stage I really didn't know much about Lou at all. John, you've got to understand. So uh, for somebody like Colin Hayes to give uh, Lou such a such high praise was indeed special.
0: Lou never had a more ardent fan than George Hanlon, who modelled his entire training technique on that of Lou Robertson. When George was training at Epsom, close to the Robertson Stables, he was constantly promoting conversation with his hero. And George's son, Gary Hanlon, said years later that his dad sometimes gave Lou an earache.
1: Well, George is lucky he didn't have a restraining order on him, actually, John, because he used to to just broadside the old boy, you know, and you got to understand at that stage, um, you know, Lou really didn't want to be, you know, pestered by by young trainers. But, but, you know, really, you got to give George Hanlon credit. George Hanlon came over from South Australia with one aim, and that was to try and get close to whom he thought was the best trainer in Australia. And he came over to Morty Allick and uh, set up stables very close to uh, Lou and would take the opportunity to try and just get to Lou all the time. And as like a water on a stone, uh, Lou uh, finally sort of, uh, he thought George Hanlon really inside the family, he thought George Hanlon was a bit wet behind the ears, but he realised that this guy was serious and this guy really was just such a sponge for information and anything he could tell him, he, uh, he took on board. And finally, there was, a, uh, there was a, a connection between the old boy and George. And George, as you said, and as Gary Hanlon said, Virtually modelled his entire training process on what he had gleaned from uh, Lou Robertson.
0: Mm. Lou was champion Melbourne trainer three times 1928 29, 43 44, 44 45. But the big feature of that performance is he did it with less than 20 horses in work. You wouldn't believe it possible.
1: Well, he did it with um, actually uh, even less than that. Uh, at any given time, he probably had between um, – he may have had maybe 16 sometimes, but more often it was often uh, even less than that. It was often around about uh, 12 or 13 horses, John. So, I mean, it's just by today's standard, you um, can't even fathom that really. Mm.
0: Your first book is nearing completion, The Oyster and the Wizard, and you've got a second one underway to be known simply as Farlap Endemonis. When do you sleep, David?
1: <laughs> well I also work full time as in, in as a national sales manager for a sustainability company so uh, mm-hmm. and uh, so uh, no I I enjoy what I'm doing this has become a, a bit of a passion John and uh, and uh, you know but on the other hand while I've been doing it for five minutes John you've been doing it for a lifetime and uh, and uh, and your contribution is is phenomenal so uh, um, I would ask the same thing about you, when do you sleep either? So, mm-hmm. uh, so the uh, – no, it's been great. And it's been – this Farlap book is interesting because it's about the uh, 1930 uh, double, Caulfield Melbourne Cup double, where the uh, bookies were taken to the cleaners. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of misinformation about that over the years. And so I'm just uh, correcting that. And there's a few uh, few things not said. And the connections made, and uh, and so that's what that story is about. So it's about Falap and about uh, that particular era, and uh, the Phillip was phenomenal, and uh, and but so were some of these characters.
0: Well, the two books between them encapsulate an amazing era in Australian racing, an era that produced horses and horsemen who are still talked about to this day when racing enthusiasts get together. I'd like to think the Australian racing industry might see fit to give you some help with the mounting costs of getting a couple of very good books published.
1: John, that's very generous of you, mate. I, I would hope so too I, because there's, there's a lot of information there. It's not just about Lou and Andrew. It's about uh, it's about everything. Is it, like you said, it's about that era, and that era was uh, – was absolutely fascinating. And the more you get into it, the more fascinating it actually becomes. And, uh, you know, because all these trainers um, were huge gamblers, and uh, a lot of the owners were huge gamblers. And, uh, and, there were, and but some of the horses were just, you know, these horses like Farlap and uh, Amonis, but there's just a whole cavalcade of these horses around these, the 20s and early 30s, which were just uh, magnificent animals.
0: I think we should close with a little quote attributed to Lou, which aspiring young trainers should keep in mind. He didn't say much, but every now and again he would drop a gem uh, in the stable or at the races and thankfully uh, people were able to clamp onto them and record them for posterity. And I love this one. Lou said on one occasion, "It's hard to make a good horse bad. Sometimes you just need to keep out of their way."
1: That's exactly right, and he was and he was adamant about that because he he believed that uh, a lot of bad trainers overtrain horses, and uh, and if you could just let the horse be a great horse. Um, you're going to get a much better reward than if you're uh, trying to micromanage some of these horses.
0: David Robertson, thank you for joining us on a podcast yep. produced by Supernova Sound and the very best of luck with the oyster and the wizard and the second book is called Farlap Monas.
1: John, thank you very much for your time I really appreciate it. Thank you, mate.
0: Mitavide has been producing high-quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder, time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 Thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitavite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitavite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website, mitavite.com or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world.